How do biography and scholarship shape each other? How does the work we do weave who we are, our histories, what we think about, and what kinds of questions we choose to try to answer? About this and many other important questions is this episode of El Café Latinx with Professor Litsi Galarza. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with us today Litsi Galarza. Litsi is assistant professor in the Department of Communication of the Dietrich School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Pittsburgh. Litsi did her undergraduate in journalism and political science at the University of Arizona, then her master's in journalism studies at the University of Missouri, Columbia, and her PhD at Penn State University with a thesis on American Jane, Jane the Virgin's political imagination of gender and transnational Latina Latino citizenship. Litsi is the author of a number of journal articles and book chapters, and her scholarship has received already very important awards from leading professional societies in the field, such as the National Communication Association and the Association for Education in Journalism and Mass Communication. Litsi, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. So tell us, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? This is actually a very difficult question to answer um, because I think it's difficult to point to a specific moment that led to me even envisioning the idea of becoming a professor. So uh, unlike some people who say, you know, I knew as a kid that I wanted to be a professor. I had no idea that this was a, an opportunity that, that would ever become available to me. Um, I think to answer this question, I would say that in some ways, I always knew that I liked learning. Um, one of my earliest childhood memories is actually of me begging my paternal grandmother to let me go to school in my sister's place. I have an older sister. She didn't particularly like school at the time. And I remember saying, I will go to school for her. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it means I have to fast forward 
from that childhood in Durango, Mexico to being a graduate student at Columbia, Missouri, where I had a Latina professor for the first time. I was her TA. And I remember asking her after class one day, I said, how did you end up here? How did you end up on this path? Because I had no idea that we could be professors too. And so for me, be, becoming a professor was never a foregone conclusion. In fact, I was uh, convinced that I would not finish my, finish my dissertation or get a job um, in the academy, yet somehow I persevered and I'm a professor now. Very interesting. So, so you grew up in Durango, in Mexico? Yes. Um, so um, how was the journey? from uh, an educational system in Mexico or Mexico to an educational system in the US. How would you characterize that transition? So that transition was actually very short. Um, and I, I say this because I came to the United States, States when I was six years old. Okay. I started kindergarten in Mexico. Um, okay. By the time my family came, I still didn't, did not know how to read or write in Spanish. And then I got here and I didn't finish kindergarten. I had to wait and then I started first grade. So in some way, sometimes I think I'm a fraud because I never finished kinder. <laughs> That's great. So, <laughs> so then most of your schooling has been done in the States. Yes. Did you always, because you know, looking at your educational trajectory, you know, journalism and communication have always been there, right? As yes. topical areas of interest. When did you know that that was your path? I think that in high school, I gravitated a lot toward the intersection of government and media. Hmm. And when I started my undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a political correspondent. Um, I always had one foot in political science and one foot in journalism. And to some people that was detracting uh, because I couldn't focus solely on one or the other. Um, by the time I interned at the Arizona State Legislature um, in my junior year, I realized, okay, this is not the path I want. Um, I got lucky. I got early exposure to undergraduate research with Dr. Kevin Kemper. And that experience was sort of my lifeline to graduate school. He had studied at Mizzou and he recommended that I apply for grad school because I was not ready <laughs> to jump into the world of journalism. By then I, I had a very drastic shift uh, even though it somehow doesn't make sense because my master's is in journalism studies. <laughs> and so by the time I get to Mizzou and I meet my mentor, Christina Mislong, um, this new television series is, is premiering in 2014, right? Jane the Virgin. And I decided that even though my master's was in journalism studies, my master's thesis was going to be on Jane the Virgin and on discourses of citizenship, um, or just broadly the representation of, of Latinidad in, in that show. Um, and so for me, 
government, media, and citizenship have always been very intertwined in how I think about, even how I move about the world uh, in which I occupy. That's fascinating. So in a sense, you're saying, well, I decided that political journalism was not going to be my career, but politics has stayed with you as an area of intellectual focus uh, <laughs> while shifting from, say, news to popular culture. Right? <laughs> it is, because it is central to the work you do. Yes. Okay. So... <laughs> So you are working on your master's thesis at Missouri, mm -hmm. and you, that's when you say, oh, I could become a professor one day. Yes. How, how do you choose doctoral programs? Why Penn State? Um, I'm I guess I'm very good at doing what I'm told. <laughs> and I say this because you know, I got to Mizzou because my mentor at Arizona was a Mizzou alum. And he said, there are people there who I trust to get you through this program. When I get to Penn State, Christina Mislan is a new assistant professor there. She was a Penn State alum of the College of Communication. I did apply to other schools. I did get into these other schools. I actually had the opportunity to stay at Mizzou and work with her. Um, but I was urged to go elsewhere again. And so Penn State was the choice for my doctoral studies because it was broader than the three-year journalism PhD. And I wanted more time to develop my skills professionally um, to, to even begin to feel confident enough about the fact that someday I might be a professor. Okay, and how were those years at Penn State? How was, you know, the experience of a PhD student uh, for you? It was probably the most difficult four years of my life. And I don't think that that is unique to it being at Penn State, I think it would have been very difficult anywhere I went. Um, it didn't help that State College is very cold for more than half of the year. Um, but it was challenging because I think that for me, I, I went on this path without really trusting that I could survive it. Um, I thought that surely something like the magnitude of a pandemic <laughs> might impede me from finishing. Um, and so I, I had to rely on the fact that other people believed in me more than I believed in me then. Uh, and that was um, scary, but also reassuring at the same time. So, could you elaborate a little bit more? Because I've heard this many times and I experienced it myself <laughs> during PhD. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Student. How did that manifest um, in your experience, right? I mean, yeah. I, how did that empower you? 
I, I um, ended up having these experiences that I did not realize were anxiety manifested in the body, right? Um, I remember, you know, clearly um, in my first year, first semester seminar on pedagogy, we had to pretend at the end of the semester that we were already professors and we had to draft a syllabus. And then we had to present, um, you know, ourselves as if we were already going up for, you know, a specific job in the academy. And I remember having an anxiety attack in class, like literally in front of my peers, I could not breathe. I started crying. Um, it was a very sort of visceral, uh, is that a word? Visceral, <laughs> visceral moment for me. Um, and, you know, I, I lived through it. I pushed through it. I um, had to realize that yes, it's challenging that there aren't that many uh, Latina, Latino, Latinx people in higher education. And that that had to be a source of motivation for me so that I could someday be the person who helps another student realize that this world is possible for them. Uh, and so it was empowering in the sense that, you know, once I got through comps, which was another big major source of like stressor, I thought I had a heart condition the week that I was writing my comps. Um, I saw a cardiologist. They thought like, what is this, I don't know, 27 year old doing here? Um, but I, 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 through comps, I had to learn to take back the power that I have to create knowledge. And that even though our people have not dominated these spaces, it doesn't mean that I didn't belong. It actually meant that I had a lot to contribute uh, in that sense. Very interesting. So, so to continue on this point, I mean, the data are in general, not by field, but in general, that the Latina, Latino, Latinx population constitutes 5% of the tenure track positions in the US, but 18.6% of the population. Right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and the growth in the population has been at a faster speed at the growth within the academy. Yes. What is the lived experience of that for you? And what strategies do you have to navigate spaces in which, you know, you do not see a lot of people like you, right? And you know that there is a disproportion relative to, right, uh, what happens in the population. So yes. could you share a little bit of that for you professionally, right, speaking? Yes, um, I, I think that we learn the media grammar of, or the grammar of higher education as we move through our graduate studies. And for me, it has meant that I've learned that when I'm teaching certain classes, it's very difficult, if not almost impossible, for me to intervene in the way that I would like to. Um, so the example I'll give you is, um, you know, for a long time, 
prior to coming to Pitt, I was teaching the media law and ethics class at the University of North Alabama. In that course, it's very difficult to insert uh, critical legal scholarship that counters white supremacy, right? That counters these longstanding notions of free speech and so on and so forth that really don't translate for uh, non-white people in the same way that they do for white individuals. And so I learned from that experience that it was, it was very difficult for me to try to you know, ch challenge um, through citational politics, the ecosystem of media law. Um, thankfully, I am now at an institution where I get to teach uh, an intro to Latinx media studies class. It's, it's a special topics right now, but at some point I will pull it out of special topics and it'll have its own course designation. Um, I also get to teach media and consumer culture, which is um, a class that gets a, a broad cross section of students. And in both of those classes, I am very strategic in how I outline the syllabus and who I cite and who I make sure that the students get exposure to. Um, and in that sense, I feel like I contribute to ensuring that Latinx scholars in particular are reaching undergraduate students earlier than I ever got to, to read their work. Super. And how do the students react to those ideas and, and those scholars? They think it's they think it's really cool. So this week, um, across both of my classes, we were looking at Disney labor and ethno-racial identity. I had them read um, Chris Chavez's work on Latino children and Disney. I had them read Diana Leon Boy's and Angara Valdivia's piece on Stuck in the Middle, the location of U.S. Latinidad. I had them read Orquidea Morales's piece on Coco and Border Horror. And they also read the piece that I presented on, Un Puente a la Mesa, the role of cultural translators in the production of Disney Pixar's Coco. And in the discussions we had in one of my classes yesterday, one of my students um, and I, we were just talking about um, the different scholars because whenever I introduce these texts, I give them a background of, you know, here's who these people are. And I noted for, um, to one of the students that I actually know all of these people who, whose work they are reading. And he thought it was fascinating. He was like, really, that's really cool. I was like, yeah, you're living the work. You're reading the work of living authors, of living scholars. And that moment for me is probably what I'll return to whenever I have you know, other challenges um, based off of my positionality in the classroom. And going from the classroom to the conference circuit, because you've been very active, right, uh, in different professional <laughs> associations, where, you know, the statistics are not very different, right? I do not know the exact statistics, but from you know, 
having spent a lot of time going to conferences, is also uh, not representative <laughs> of society. Um, how do you navigate those spaces where the interactions are not with a mix of colleagues and students, but purely colleagues and not colleagues from your own institution, but colleagues from different institutions for networking mm -hmm. practices, knowledge sharing, et cetera, that will impact your career down the line? Mm. I think conferences are very exhausting. I, I think that for some of us, which I think there's a lot of us in higher ed who are more introverted than extroverted, it takes a lot of energy to network um, with, with other scholars. Um, I think that for me, it has been useful to always have a specific space that I return to that I know will have familiar faces. Uh, and that home, that intellectual home for me has been at NCA um, for, I think, I want to say it has been at least four years. For at least four years in a row, there has been a group of us that has put together a round table and we just talk about whatever it is that we're all working on at that time, whatever new projects that are coming up. Uh, and a lot of collaborations have come out of that round table. Um, my work with Diana, for example, is, is, is one example of that. Um, and so I think that for me, um, I, I tend to be very shy. <laughs> actually, when I'm at conferences. And so um, it helps to sort of tag along with somebody else who just frankly knows more people than I do, or who, who is more willing to do the awkward, small talk interactions. Uh, so hopefully that answers that question. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, and absolutely answers that question. So it is about you know, finding a small community that energizes you, nourishes you, right, empowers you. Um, and that, in that sense, provides a space, a home away from home, so to speak, in the conference circuit. Mm -hmm. So how do you pick topics? I mean, I, I you already shared a little bit of uh, your yeah. transition from political communication to gender virgin. Um, <laughs> You also, that was also your case study for your dissertation, yes. right? Um, so can you talk about, you know, how you chose a dissertation topic and, and how you've been sort of choosing your both topics and questions as you, mm -hmm. your career has progressed? Yeah. Um, I, and this is what I tell students when I, ask them to think about research topics for their final projects in my classes. I always say, here's how I do this. I focus on things that I either really, really love or things that I really, really hate. My emotions tend to drive what I choose to focus on. So the one example <laughs> where and it was actually a little bit more complicated than this, but like the one example where I really had a distaste for what I saw was 
the 2017 Super Bowl commercial produced by 84 Lumber. It's a, that's a PA company. Um, the ad is beautiful. It is cinematic. It has high production value. It appeals to your emotions. There's, there's like emotional music to it. But as an immigrant myself, who remembers the journey to the United States, I was also very, very appalled by it. And so that's how I chose to study how Twitter users were responding to the advertisement, how they were interpreting the ad. So that's one example. Um, in terms of my dissertation, um, I, I had been studying Jane the Virgin since it premiered, right? I wrote a master's thesis on it. Uh, at this point, that's been cited more than my dissertation, so that's interesting. Uh, that was my early, not polished <laughs> work. Um, but I chose to continue to focus on Jane the Virgin in part because the timing was right, all right? Jane the Virgin uh, lasts from 2014 to 2019. Uh, and I, I always go back and forth on who is my favorite character on that TV show, because depending on what I'm working on, it'll change. Um, but for now, I'll say Jaime Camille is a really interesting actor, and he portrays a really interesting character in this series. And I chose to focus on citizenship for the dissertation, because I myself have struggled with identity and belonging and notions of citizenship in, in my personal life. I'm a naturalized immigrant. Um, I, was a, I was a permanent resident for 17 years. Uh, my grandfather was uh, the first in my family to become a citizen. I'm the last foreign born grandchild on both my mom and my dad's side. And so, I think about citizenship in some way, shape or form just every day. And so that, and coming across Hector Amaya's book on citizenship access in 2018, because I won some raffle where I got to pick books. This is how, I, how lucky I was because I was not familiar with his work prior to 2018. Um, how his work and Leo Chavez's work on the Latino threat narrative sort of just blew up how I was thinking about Latinidad uh, and citizenship um, at the time. And so that hopefully encapsulates how I pick projects. Um, no, absolutely. And maybe also. Go on, go on. And maybe also the, the, the kinds of, also the kinds of questions. I ask in some way, shape or form, I, I would like to say that I try to think about the limits of how we think about citizenship, given the scholarship that exists. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, right now, I'm also working on a different project. Um, that's tied to the representation of uh, the quinceañera and on my block, 
the Netflix series. And um, discourses of citizenship there. And so um, I, I, I had prior to this, I had been working on this first draft of this project um, this semester. And so I've been reading about, you know, how scholars are thinking about cultural citizenship, but also there's other aspects of citizenship like political citizenship, economic citizenship, social citizenship, so on and so forth. And I am trying to bring these together to talk about how we repeatedly see this superficial nod to immigrants and immigrant narratives in popular media. And how in the case of On My Block, Olivia's parents are hardly there. They don't get a last name. They don't get to speak for themselves. Yet the producers seem to want to pat themselves on the back for this superficial inclusion of here we have the child of Mexican immigrants. We should empathize with her, but we ignore these larger, more complex uh, issues tied to citizenship and why her parents are, you know, this is fictional, but like, you know, why there are millions of undocumented immigrants or why we have uh, DACA status holders, which is sort of a quasi legal mess, right? In terms of status. Interesting. So, so this ambivalence of inclusion exclusion in a mm -hmm. way, right? So mm -hmm. included but not quite or not, right. right? So your work on gender virgin is, even though you are thinking in the back of your mind and explicit in the text about issues of citizenship, it is more, so it takes less the sort of immigration focus that you have in the work in Coco, for instance, right? Or this work. Um, how do you weave the biographical and the theoretical in your work? Because I think the biographical is very, very present and driving, right? Mm. Um, and it is tied to theoretical choices, I'm starting to realize. I didn't realize that really. The word. Mm -hmm. So it's tied to theoretical choices that probably then, I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, but over time also shape your own experience of your own biography, because biography is not only the facts, biography is how we make sense of it, right? Yeah. How has them, how has, that journey been for you? Uh, the first word I can think of is painful. Um, it, the most painful and most difficult piece for me to write of the work that's already out there was the book chapter where I talk about my own immigrant 
experience and first-generation American narratives in Jane the Virgin. That thing was more difficult to write than my dissertation. Interesting. And it and it is because, you know, I had to draw on other scholarship on autoethnography because I had never written this way. I I had been very good at sort of separating. Uh, even though my my experience does inform my research, I had been very good at separating sort of the emotions from it. But when you're writing about yourself and your own and your own experience, like all of that stuff just comes up. In fact, I, I did not want to present on what is the bulk of my work because of this concern, because sometimes the emotions can show up in opportune times. Uh, and so you know, for me, once I once I read Hector Amaya's book on citizenship access, this political and media theory that that I have been fascinated by ever since I came across it, and I hope that somehow I am pushing it forward in some way. Um, my own relationship to my understanding of citizenship has changed, right? You know, back then in 2015, when I naturalized, for me, it was more of a celebratory experience. Once I read about how citizenship is a technology of power that always connotes inequality, that always separates the citizen from the non-citizen, right? And there are all kinds of non-citizens, not just quote unquote illegals, right? Um, once I see this, you know, I have to recognize that that I am complicit also in maintaining these systems that perpetuate systemic inequality. Hmm. So, and then, you know, you live most of your life in the U.S. Mm -hmm. What is Mexico to you? Oh my gosh. I think for me, uh, there will come a time where Mexico to me is, it mostly signifies memories. Um, and I say that because um, when I was a kid, there was a time period where both of my parents were not in Mexico with me and my siblings. Um, my dad's mother took care of us and, and she took care of us for, I don't know how long, but I knew that my parents were gone, right? And that was very formative for me. And so I have memories of, you know, them not being there, you know, me being with my grandmother and my siblings. Um, you know, I remember some of the times that I went to kindergarten, that sort of thing. Um, and the journey itself was, was in some ways traumatic for me. I'm the youngest of three. My sisters might see this completely different. Um, and right now, um, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, 
um, he, he spends about half of the year in Mexico and then comes to Phoenix where most of my family is. And so um, I, haven't, I hadn't been back to where my family's from in like 20 years um, until my grandmother died last, last summer. And okay. so going back there for me was um, a really interesting experience because you know, all of these memories come flooding back. Um, and all of that to say that at some point, I know that when my grandfather is, is gone, I won't have sort of that literal connection to the country. And yet you have your work on Coco, for instance, that, <laughs> right? It is a bridge. Yeah. Right? Yes. Uh, that's what I was thinking when I yeah. asked the question about Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, um, you know, I've spent half of my life in this country, um, including yeah. not 17, but nine years as a green card holder. And, um, and not very long ago, I became naturalized. So I, you know, um, immigration paths are, are somewhat, you know, complicated, right? Yeah. Uh, emotionally, not just legally, right? But emotionally, mm -hmm. intellectually. And sometimes we build, you know, bridges that we are not aware of when we build them, but that constitute. <laughs> so, yeah. so where do you see your scholarship going in the future? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, next semester, <laughs> I won't think that far ahead. I'll think about next semester. Uh, next semester, I'm going to start working on a book proposal that will focus on Jane the Virgin and citizenship um, and will expand on um, some of the ideas that, uh, that came out of uh, the dissertation. I think that um, I also want to work on a follow-up that looks at cultural translation and cultural translators in a different context. Um, I want to see what the limits are of trying to use this framework mm -hmm. for production analysis because I was very surprised that really there was only Conway's piece in 2012 and Pignon's piece in 2011 on Ugly Betty. I was literally like, what, that's it? Where's the rest of the scholarship? Uh, and so I think that, that in the short term, I, I, I also want to do more to connect cultural translation to citizenship. And the way to do this for now is to again address how these are practices of citizenship. Cool. So if you have magical powers, Litsi, and you know, could be granted one wish about how you would like the field as a whole to change, other than producing more work on cultural translation. Um, what would you wish for? 
I think that I wish that the field of media studies and communication more broadly would center the scholarship that looks at Latinxes and our citizenship in the United States. I think there still isn't enough scholarship that looks at how media either offer representations of citizenship or how the exclusion of Latinxes from cultural production um, symbolically erase our contributions to the nation's history, right? And to the contemporary moment. I mean, there's, there's been a proliferation of media platforms in the digital sphere led by Latinxes. And, uh, and my question is who is studying this cultural production? Excellent. Excellent question with which to, to end the, this uh, episode. Thank you very much, Litsi, for a fascinating um, and very, very deep conversation. Thank you to our audience for staying with us uh, to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of the Cafe Latinx. Thank you again, Litsi. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.